gift these two books to anyone that would uh, be inclined to read them this month. Um, I'd say it again since the mic caught up. I'd like to gift these two books to anybody that may be inclined to read them this month. We're in the fourth of a four-week series on discipling. And the first book is titled Discipling, How to Help Others Follow Jesus by Mark Dever. And same author, Understanding the Great Commission, Church Basics. And I'm going to be consulting these books without reference during the sermon. I'm just going to set them here. If you feel so inclined to read them this month, that's all I ask is you read them within a month so they don't just sit on a shelf and draw dust. But I think they would profit you. This series is about discipling. It's about understanding the Great Commission. And we come to the footer of this series by looking at the Great Commission itself. We've already looked at the cost of discipleship in Luke 14. We read that verse this morning. Brother Mark read it during the prayer of confession. We've already looked at Colossians chapter 1, which is the aim of presenting everyone complete in Christ on the day of the Lord and part of how we get there. Last week we heard from Brother Charles Cavanaugh about how the mark of a disciple is love and what that looked like practically with the need for hygiene and washed feet in the first century and how Peter choked on that truth. And there was just some wonderful things that were shared last week by Brother Charles. Did you enjoy him last week? I know I did. I really appreciated him coming out. And uh, so we come to the footer of this series today, uh, fourth of four weeks, and we're going to be looking particularly at the text that we've been reading to end every service the Great Commission, as it's commonly called. And uh, just to, to say a, a word or two about where we're going before we go where we're going right now, I also want to let you know that at the bookstall, you can pick up our scripture journal for the next series, which we intend to start uh, in two weeks from today, the Revelation to John. We're going to be looking at the book of Revelation, Lord willing. Um, so Revelation is our scripture journal, and those are going to be available at the bookstall. If you'd like to have one of those, some of you like to take notes with the sermon series as we go through consecutive expositions in a book. It has been unusual for us to do a topical expositional series on discipling. We don't do that all the time, but we just kind of felt like at this point in the journey, it was important to, to refocus on, to reorientate toward discipleship. And so uh, before we get to that in two weeks in Revelation... We'll have another psalm sermon from Pastor Kurt next week, and today we end our series on discipling. So again, those books during the service, after the service, if you want to grab them, feel free to do that. And uh, we are going to look today at what is really not a new text at all to you, probably, if you've, if you've been around church for any length of time. It's called the Great Commission. It's Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. And I would ask you if you would want to turn there with me now and to look at it. Uh, really, looking at this text today, there are three little letters that stand out. A-L-L. There's a, a detergent named after it, all. A-L-L. Uh, you're going to see all th four times in our passage as you watch for it. All has a range of meaning. It comes to us from three letters in Greek, at least in its root, P-A-S, or, or Pi Alpha Sigma. Pas means all. Anytime you say all, all has a range of meaning. I say I want to eat all of the pie. I don't mean all of the pies everywhere. I mean all of that particular pie, right? Or if I say, uh, I, you know, I want uh, to do all of the laundry, which you ever said that, right? And I want to do all the laundry. You don't mean all the laundry everywhere in every house. You mean all the laundry in your house, or maybe just all the dirty laundry in particular, right? If you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut all of the grass, you mean I'm going to cut all the grass in my yard. I don't presume you're going to cut everybody's grass in Mount Vernon, uh, although we do have some very generous volunteers in the church that cut a whole lot of grass every year, and I'm grateful for them doing that. Uh, they cut all of the grass at 1717 Main Street. Uh, and we're grateful for that. But it still has a range of meaning. A-double-L -L has a range of meaning. I was a pastor that was talking, trying to set this text up based on these four alls. And uh, he said that he had an agreement with his wife that he would cut the grass because she had allergies. And he said the agreement worked real well for him in the winter because she agreed to do the laundry and he was allergic to laundry. I'm not real sure he was allergic to laundry. But that was the deal that they had set up with regard to all, but just a, a kind of a funny way to get you into the meaning of this text, to begin considering this main word, uh, all, all, is total for the realm to which it's speaking, to the degree to which it speaks for. I, I want to say something a little bit more emotive at this point. 
Maybe you come here this morning and you feel like, I just can't do it all. You ever feel that way? I just can't do it all. Uh, all has a range of meaning there too, doesn't it? Your Lord doesn't expect you to do it all. He expects you to do what's in front of you. He expects you to do what's faithful. And when we are unfaithful, what does the Bible say in Thessalonians? He's faithful and he will do it, right? And so a word of encouragement to you right from the get-go this morning. I want to assert this morning, as we, we're going to read this text, you're going to hear the alls, but I want, to, I want to kind of give you the lay of the land before we do. I want to assert that the Great Commission is a we thing and not just a me thing. Now some might say in disagreement that the Great Commission should be understood primarily as a me thing. But I believe that Great Commission should be understood as a we thing and a me thing, but first and foremost as a we thing. Jesus is all authority given to him, we're about to read about, was leveraged to commission his disciples, his first disciples, to an intentional discipling ministry. And that discipling ministry, based on his all authority, was to all types, with all teachings, and at all times. And so if you want to, to take notes this morning from this text, if you want to try to get maximum out of this text, follow these four alls. This broad first point I'm going to get into is all authority of Jesus. And then the second, third, and fourth points are going to be not just all authority of Jesus, but to all types of people with all of Jesus' teachings and for all time. And there's a range of meaning to time or this eon that we're going to get into as well. So those three T's might help you. After you get past the big banner, everything's draped in the authority given to Jesus. But it's for all types, all teaching, all times. So there's some alliteration that might help you follow it. Types, teachings, and times. And we'll see these three little letters, all, or pos in the Greek. And we'll see how, I think, as we go through the sermon, that it is a benefit to you to see this commission as for us and not just for me, as for we and not just for me. And I think if you're intentional about discipling, you'll see a benefit of Jesus at work through us in the manner he's intended. I, I've titled this sermon, Our Great Commission, instead of My Great Commission. And so let's go ahead and get started. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when, they saw, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you all ways. Quick word, that really is pas. They go always, but it's actually pas ha all the days. All the days are always. I'm with you all the days, always, to the end of the eon, to the end of the age, to the consummation of the age, to the, to the soon teleos of the age, to the complete consummation of this time period. That's the Great Commission. And I hope you're already kind of beginning to lean in based on how I'm explaining it uh, exegetically. I hope you're beginning to lean into the point that I'm hoping to make this morning about the Great Commission. You know, they, when we talk about something so much, sometimes familiarity can breed contempt. But in this case, something that's so central to Jesus's plan, that is his authority being leveraged toward us to commission us to make disciples, that kind of familiarity should only bring joy. It shouldn't breed contempt. And so the deeper we go into this, the more joy we get. We, we don't get jeers, but we get joy. We don't get contempt when the familiarity with a thing is a beautiful thing that's coming into flower as the kingdom comes. So again, four points today. Let's look at the first one. The Great Commission is a we thing because Jesus commissions us with all authority. Authority looms over this commission. There's some discussion over what he's given us the authority to do in this epoch during our lives. But there's absolutely no relevant discussion about Jesus' absolute authority over everything. All in heaven and on earth, would you agree with me that he reigns? His supreme reign, which we let out with in this service is something that we ought be constantly reminded of and we ought find joy in because His perfect love casts out our fears when we stare them right in the face. This morning, please don't let this idea of authority dissuade you from following Jesus. 
There's a context to this declaration. Jesus humbly chose the way of the cross. Far from flexing his muscles, he laid on a wooden cross, a symbol of Roman oppression and brutality, to offer himself as a living sacrifice for you and for me. He died. He rose again. And the first witness of Jesus' resurrection, the first witnesses, were tasked with setting up this meeting on the mountain that we see in verse 16. In fact, earlier in Matthew 28, verses 8 through 10, it says this, So they, the women, departed quickly from the tomb where Jesus was resurrected with fear and great joy. See how fear and joy go together there. They're like twinnings. I'm afraid of the Lord that I find joy in. And they ran to tell his disciples. They go to tell his methetis, his disciples. The verbal form of this and imperative is going to be used in our main text today. They ran to tell his disciples, which were the apostles. Verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings, joy. And they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. We start to see not just the humanity of Jesus, but the deity of Jesus. And then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid, verse 10, Go and tell, not my traitors, not those that didn't stand with me in my time of need, not those that I'm holding a grudge against. Go and tell my brethren. Go tell my brothers and sisters. Go tell them to go to Galilee where they're going to see me on that mountain that we predetermined. They'll remember. I'll call it to mind. Tell them to meet me in Galilee. And then if you jump forward to verse 16, the 11 disciples go to that mountain in Galilee. Now, why are there 11 and not 12? Do you recall? Because one of the twelve, in fact, was a, was a total traitor. He not only didn't understand the gospel message, he flat out rejected it, and he sold Jesus down the river, and he couldn't live with himself, and he hung himself. And so that was Judas. And eventually they'll replace that, that apostle with Matthias. You can read about it in Acts chapter 1, but that's kind of downstream from where we are here. We are left with this imperfect number of eleven, these eleven apostles or disciples. They are disciples in addition to being apostles, and they're here on this mountain to hear what's important to Jesus, what he's going to do with what he's done, what he expects us to do with what he's done in this time, in this epoch. Eleven remaining apostles, brothers, a family term that's being used. And this brings some strange exercising of authority. Remember from last week, Jesus washed the feet of his disciples before he went to the cross. And then he goes to the cross willingly. His exercising of authority shows the shape of love in the Christian life. Jesus' followers demonstrate love by serving one another with the basic needs of life. And here we come in Matthew 28, and Jesus is telling them how to exercise the authority that he's vesting in them his way. You might remember in the gospel earlier that Peter, James, and John got this woefully wrong. Their mother did too. Do you remember? Hey, make, make him first in your kingdom. And Jesus is like, the first will be last. Uh, see, this whole thing about authority, it's, it's, a, it's misunderstood. It's, it's meek, but it isn't weak. So they gather here to talk about this, this all authority given to Jesus and what that means for us here at the very end of Matthew. And this, this great commission, these last words recorded in Matthew's gospel, come in the context of the gospel. Uh, These were not Jesus' final words before His ascension. We know from the other Gospels and from Acts. But by ending Matthew's Gospel this way with these words, Matthew draws attention to the importance of the commission. He puts it on a billboard. For Matthew, the Great Commission summed up Jesus' entire post-resurrection message. Following the festival of unleavened bread, the eleven disciples traveled to Galilee weeks later to a certain mountain in obedience to Jesus' instructions. And this commission is not just a wish, a suggestion, it's a command. It's an imperative, it's an authoritative command to make disciples in obedience to Jesus' instructions. His all authority is then leveraged to say to us, this is what it means to be about my business. This is what I want you to do. So we need to pay attention when we're faced with something that's on a billboard like that for us. Amidst all the early confusion about who Jesus was, and Matthew 28 talks about it in verses 11 through 15, this meeting takes place in Galilee on this mountain that Jesus had designated before his death. And they recognize what C.S. Lewis would later say, that either Jesus would have to be considered a lunatic or Lord, but we need to get out of here with all this crazy business about him being a mere example or a teacher. Jesus is declaring himself all authority given him. He's declaring himself deity the God-Son, 
the, the, the God, the man in flesh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's making claims about himself that can't be and shouldn't be rightly trivialized as a good example or a guy that had some moral teachings to teach us, but everything wasn't just right. Either he deserves to be worshipped or deserves to be forgotten. There is no middle to exclude when it comes to who Jesus is. He is deity. And this man, more than an example of a teacher, as God in flesh, has been given allness to his authority. It has been done. It's been accomplished. And it's interesting that the allness of his authority extends to heaven and earth. Look at that verse again. The verses, our main passage, Matthew 28. And look down at how it talks about his authority. Eleven disciples on the mountain. They came, they saw him, they worshipped. There was doubt, there's fear, there's joy. There's lots of stuff going on. Jesus doesn't cast them away. And he came to them, and this is what he said. He says, all, pas, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why is that important? Think about that for a moment. Why, why would he say that about heaven and earth? I'll come back to that in just a moment. Mark Dever writes, when people are skittish over spiritual authority, apologizing for it, I know they're probably thinking of authority in a wrong way. They think as if authority is only an advantage for the person who possesses it. Apparently, they haven't had any children yet, he writes. Authority looks like an advantage only to someone who doesn't have it. When you have authority, pretty much all the advantages seem to disappear. And when you begin to realize how much of it is service, a glorious service, but a real service, you don't make an icon out of authority. Benevolent authority blesses those under it. It nourishes them. People gravitate toward good, healthy authority and spend in the kind of authority that spends itself for the good of those under its care rather than for its own good. Look at how a family prospers under good parents or how a team prospers under a good coach. Abuses withstanding, terrible as they are, abuses should not obstruct your and my view of Jesus' authority and how he's delegated it. Grateful, the kind of authority on the cross shows us the opposite is true for godly authority from heavy-handed authority. Jesus tutors his disciples in the godly use of authority. So we must also tutor those that we disciple in the godly discharge of authority. We must model such Jesus-type use of authority. Authority is not our enemy. The misuse of authority is our enemy. Our supreme example of exercising authority while passing out authority is none other than God himself through the person of Jesus Christ. He created Adam in his image and he crowned him with glory and dominion, putting him over everything. Everything was under his feet. And then he gave Christ all authority in heaven and on earth in order to call out a people for himself. That's what we're reading here this morning. And Christ then commanded these people, us, to make disciples so that we might share with his reign. Astonishingly, the Bible even uses the language of redeemed humanity reigning with God, being kings with God, Revelation 20 says. If Christ's for joy's sake would share his rule with us, how much joy should we find in sharing our rule with others? This is discipling. In many ways, it is like parenting. It's sharing rule, knowing the joy of creating and redeeming. God has imparted this to us, and it is a wonderful, wonderful joy. The Bible doesn't have to use the phrase great commission for it to be implied. It is a commission. We've been commissioned to make disciples. We've been implored to do so. And familiarity with this should not breed contempt. It should breed joy. During his ministry before the crucifixion, Jesus had said that his mission was only to the lost sheep of Israel, Matthew 15. But now, after the resurrection, he is the exalted judge of all the earth. He rose with the authority of the Almighty, like the Son of Man mentioned in Daniel chapter 7. Jesus' rule or authority extends beyond Israel to every nation, to all nations. He has all authority, and remember I said it earlier, in heaven and on earth. This is interesting to me. I think it comes with a context. Let your eyes look at that phrase again. Matthew 28, 18. All, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What is the significance of that in verse 18, just prior to the three participial verbs and the main verb of make disciples? What, what's, 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 what's significant? Jesus isn't mincing words here. He's saying things he means. Where else in the Gospel of Matthew in particular have we seen this authority of over heaven and earth, on heaven and on earth, or the connection between heaven and earth? Well, I'm glad you asked. Would you turn back with me to Matthew chapter 16? 
Keep your finger in Matthew 28. Turn back about a dozen pages to Matthew 16. And consider where if we were to read straight through Matthew, well, we might have seen this before. Matthew 16, 16 through 19. So, of course, prior to Jesus' death and resurrection, he was instructing his disciples about what was to come. And he says, Peter, verse 16, Simon Peter replied rather to Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter recognized Jesus' Messiahship. And Jesus answered Peter, he said, Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father who is in heaven implied has revealed this to you. Now, talking about heaven and earth, look at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. You're like, what? Where is church coming into all this? Well, I think that's part of it. He says, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. It's not going to prevail against it. You don't have to worry about whether or not this disciple-making plan is going to work. It's going to work. It's not yours to worry about. You don't have to wonder if it's going to work. You just have to be obedient to it. All authority has been given to Jesus, and he says, this is how I'm going to have my business done. I will build my church. The gates of hell won't prevail against my church. And this is what he says to Peter, obviously representative of the apostles, verse 19, who were also disciples, who he's going to command later to make disciples. He says, I will give you, I will give you, future tense, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So this is, it's, 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 it, without a context, that would be an odd thing. It's an odd way for him to reply to Peter's confession of faith in the context of the church and to bring heaven and earth language into the same conversation. It's interesting. And if he just did it once, we, we might think we're making much of it. But just look at Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 is just a page over. It's after Jesus' transfiguration and some more teaching and about taking up your cross and following him as a disciple. And then Matthew 18, 17 and 18, in the context of a wayward sheep or a wayward believer from the church, he evokes the church again. He says, if he refuses to listen to them when they, when they come to him about church discipline, then tell it to the church. So Jesus is talking about the church before his death, burial, and resurrection. It says in this verse... In verse 17, and if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a, as a Gentile tax collector. Let him be as an outsider, outside the church. In other words, practice excommunication. Verse 18 is essential to understanding Matthew 28, 18. Listen to it afresh. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, you plural, you church, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth, shall be loosed in heaven. I just meditate on that for a moment. Clearly, the Great Commission is not without thought as Matthew's writing his gospel for Matthew 18 and Matthew 16. It has a we context, not just a me context. And then everyone's favorite quotables from Matthew 18. I say to you, if two or three of you agree on anything about they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And we often forget that it's in the context of this discussion about heaven and earth and authority and about the church. Now, you can take that back then to Matthew 28 and read it afresh, verse 18. And I hope you'll do that with me. As it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth, ding, 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 here comes light bulbs. Matthew 16 and 18 would be flashing into their head the content that we have in Matthew 16 and 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so this authority has been given to Jesus, and he's then therefore going to tell them what they are to do with this authority. So we need to see that line of continuity. Ordinarily, local churches then possess the authority to baptize. Because Matthew 16 and 18 tell us that local churches possess Jesus' keys, his authority. They possess the authority to affirm or recognize right confession and right confessor, as Jesus did with Peter in Matthew 16. And they have the authority also to deny, as Jesus instructs the church to do in instances of church discipline. 
Jesus concluded chapter 18 of Matthew's episode by explaining, Where for two or three are gathered in my name, I am there with them. Who has the authority to baptize in Jesus' name? It is the people who gather in his name. And Jesus says there in chapter 18 that he will abide there with us. He'll be with us. And it says in Matthew 28, he's going to be with us. There's a witness to his being with us to the end of the age. So this all authority, this pass is to be leveraged toward us to do a particular thing. And particularly that thing is making disciples. To carry the marriage metaphor forward a little further, uh, they joke at a wedding. The man says, I do, and then the woman says, well, you sure did. You've probably heard that kind of common joke before. The adventure really begins once you say, I do, right? Well, I think you need to, in a sense, think of baptism that way. If you've never been obedient to baptism, you should. If you're a believer in Christ, you should be obedient to baptism. Baptism is the beginning of as a sign of the beginning of your life in Christ. And the Lord's Supper is the ongoing sign of that new covenant. The Great Commission envisions a self-conscious commitment to Christ, and baptism is part of that. Two individuals have to agree that they confess the same Christ and that one person is joining with another in wearing Jesus' name tag and being in the marriage and being in the family. Like two children who belong to the same parent, we acknowledge that we are siblings Baptism does that. The Lord's Supper makes this affirmation of one another visible and ongoing. Through the cup and the bread, we participate in the blood as one body, 1 Corinthians 10 talks about. So the Great Commission is not about less than personal evangelism and missions, but it is about more. It's not just about me, it's about we. It's about planting churches where people commit to Christ and to one another as members through baptism and through the Lord's Supper. It's focused, but it's broad in its impact. I fear too often with the mission of the church, we get broad in our focus and way too narrow in our impact. If we're narrow in our focus, we get to be broad in our impact. Now, I've spent a good bit of time talking about this, this authority, this all authority, because I think it is the top and tail of the Great Commission. His authority puts him with us until the end of this age. His authority has been given to him in the resurrection. But let's talk about the meat in the middle. Let's talk about the middle of this text where we really get our marching orders for how to live out this focus. And so these next three points are going to be more rapid fire. Bless you. They're going to be about all types of people, all types, all teachings of Jesus, and all the time that we're here. So let's look at that. All authority of Jesus was our first point. The Great Commission is a we thing because Jesus commissions us to all types. That's our second point. Look again at Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Matthew 28, 19. It says, Go therefore, therefore go, and make disciples of all nations. Doug Wilson says it like this. He says that therefore go, that go therefore, means that there is no authority on earth by which Jesus is not senior to. Just because he's commissioned us to do a certain thing doesn't mean he's not senior to every single commissioner, every prime minister, every president, every single person in every business authority position, every parent. Jesus is senior to the authority of all of us. And you best get that in your mind. When he combines heaven and earth with his authority, what he's saying is the kingdom is coming and my authority will be wielded through the church, but it will in time be total and robust, and heaven and earth will be intertwined in such a way that you will not exist there if you don't claim the name of Jesus Christ. That's where this is going, and that's how we'll end this sermon. And so we best be about the business of understanding that Jesus is about the business through us of going to all social types of people. The actual word is ethne in Greek, ethnos, or ethnicity. All different ethnicities. If you don't have a vision yet for the fact that heaven is going to be filled with every single type of person, that there's going to be believers from every tribe and tongue, it's, it's going to be the great undoing of the Tower of Babel. It's going to be a great reamalgamation of all types of people from languages. If, if you don't have that sense of the diversity of heaven, you probably need to go on a short-term mission trip, and you probably need to read your Bible very carefully. Because the fact of the matter is, God is not monolithic in his vision for his people. The Great Commission took a Jewish religion and turned it into a global outburst 
by which every tribe and tongue would hear the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And we're supposed to be a part of that in our generation. When he says, then go therefore and make disciples of all nations, he's saying pos ethne, all nations, all social types, all types of people, not just some, but all. And it remains, discipling remains our great opportunity around the world. But it doesn't just have to happen by going around the world. You can go right around here. Think about how the Lord has brought the nations to us, too. They're refugees. I won't mention proper nouns, but through my relationships with people that work at one of the local businesses here with a 1,000 employees, there are folks from many different nations I get to talk to about Jesus, eventually, about the gospel. You do too. You have these opportunities, people that I don't know but you know, to talk to all different social types, all types of people. I'm not asking you yet if you have a vision to go to the mission field. I hope that some of you do. I hope the Lord puts that on some of our young people. I hope we're a mission-sending church. But I'm simply asking you now, can today be the day that afresh and anew, you have an intentionality about looking at different social types of people in our area, by which you might be able to have a gospel-sharing opportunity with them. I think that's a great application from this allness of the nations. Jesus intends it to go forward. We are to make disciples of all nations. We're to have a heart for that, a pos ethnos. We want it to go to the Africas, to Asia, to the Americas, Africa, Asia, the Americas. We want it to go everywhere. We want it to go all over the world. We should pray for missions and for church planning around the world, but we shouldn't overlook our call to the discipling efforts here and now, right here. We certainly pray, as we will pray in the pastoral prayer, for our missionaries to places around the world where this is happening, where disciples are being made in the Middle East and, and as well as in other parts of the world. But we shouldn't overlook the application right here and right now. I want to share with you in rapid fire four verses that makes this point in Matthew uh, the second point of discipling all nations. Matthew 4, 23 talks about proclaiming the gospel. Matthew 4, 23, in Galilee and then to the Gentiles. There's this future look at how the gospel is going to go as early as Matthew 4, 23. And when, he, when Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, remember he's on a mountain in Galilee now, he taught in their synagogues proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and healed every disease and affliction from among the people. And so we see the proclaiming of the gospel of the kingdom going out among the people, and this proclaiming the gospel is to go forward in Galilee of the Gentiles. Look at Matthew 9.35. This, this is expanding as we move toward the consummation. It says in Matthew 9.35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And so he had compassion on the people, and he shared with them how this, this gospel would be proclaimed, it would go forward. And we see in Matthew 24, 14 then, that this has to be done. It's not that it might be done. It's not that we can be about the Lord's work and this not be done. It's about how it must be done. In Matthew 24, 14, it says the following. And I hope you see how I'm getting my cues for interpreting the last verses of Matthew from the entirety of Matthew. I hope you'll do that too. Matthew 24, 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world, all nations, the whole world. And then what? The end will come. So we're talking about the end of our age, what is supposed to happen prior to the end of that age. So the gospel goes to all nations. I don't have an exact time card on that, but I believe that we're supposed to be about that work, and I believe that this verse will be proven true in the end. The gospel will be proclaimed to all nations throughout the whole world, and then the end will come. And then Matthew 26, 13 gives us a, another look, too. It says, Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So we're talking th this about Jesus being anointed with oil. And it says that there, this story is going to travel to the whole world as the gospel is being told. And I'm satisfied that it is. Don't you see Matthew 28's allness of the nations is not being said in a silo. It's not just a pump you up session. It's said in light of the local church's mission to perpetuate itself in the entire world. Number three, the Great Commission is a we thing because Jesus commissions us with all teaching, all of his teaching. Well, where is Jesus' teaching recorded? It's here, right? This is his teaching. 
not just the red-letter words, but all the words. Jesus teaches us by the right interpretation of His Word. But if you like to talk about red-letter words, I just want to let you know that the Great Commission is certainly read. Jesus is giving us this commission from the mountain. He's giving it to His first disciples. He's given it to us. It is something that He's given for us in perpetuity until the end of the age. Pas is an adjective. It's plural here. It's correlated with the relative pronoun that. You're commanded to keep an eye on or to watch or to guard. To, you're charged with, you're ordered with this discipleship. You're ordered with all teaching. This is all that what he has commanded. All that he has told you. All that he's taught you. So that which was for the apostles is now for us. Remember in John's gospel, Jesus promised to help the apostles remember after he was gone what it is they needed to write down. Well, that's exactly what happened with the Bible. Peter talks of it that way in 1 Peter 1 and 2 and 2 Peter 1. Jesus' word endures forever. He called it to the mind of the apostles so they could write it down so we could have a reliable word, so that we could have a word that would endure forever ever and ever and ever and ever. We have the word. Jesus, the word, has given us a word. And it is by his authority that we then disciple, which means to follow or to learn or to grow which means we have to actually have the heart of a teacher at times and the heart of a lead learner at times, both and, not either or. I was talking with some of my friends in the church a few weeks ago, and we are talking about the recording in the gospel about a certain centurion interacting with Jesus. And he asked Jesus if Jesus would heal a need that one of his servants had. So it tips you off right away that this centurion was concerned for his servants and not just for himself, a benevolent use of authority to be sure. And he says to Jesus in that conversation, Jesus says, okay, what do you want? And he says, well, will you heal my servant's need? And Jesus says, well, do you want to bring them to me? And he said, no, I understand authority. I'm in authority and under authority. I understand your authority. If you'll just say it, it'll be done. And the healing happened. Now that centurion that Gentile teaches us something about understanding authority, doesn't it? Those that should have caught the vision of Jesus' authority and what good authority is supposed to look like totally missed it. And their embattled bitterness, they missed his authority and what he was doing in the nations. And this centurion got it. And he understood what it meant both to be in authority and under authority. That's the truth for all of us, isn't it? I mean, somebody has to disciple us and we have to be about the business of discipling to be faithful to the great commission it just sounds so ho-hum right discipling i mean couldn't jesus have given us something a little more festive to do discipling you know i'm gonna spend time with people in the 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 regularness of life and we're gonna learn scripture and we're gonna talk about application and we're gonna figure out the best way to worship the lord and do life together it sounds so ho-hum but I would shudder to think that we would allow ourselves for long to think of Jesus' punchline as ho-hum. Make disciples. Going means you, you go, you're intentional. Make disciples. Baptizing. The church is about the business of baptizing normally and regularly. Teaching. Everything or all that we've been commanded. This is a this teaching is something that we're all commanded to engage in and something we're all commanded to be about as well. Hearing from it and giving it. Discipleship is following Jesus, and it's helping someone else to follow Jesus too. The Bible talks about older men in the faith discipling younger men or younger women seeking out older women. Or I think we could infer from like Titus 2, a single woman might offer a stay-at-home mom in the church help with laundry in exchange for the opportunity to ask lots of questions about what it might look like one day to be in a marriage union, to have a family. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're a lay elder teaching an adult Sunday school class, you ought to recruit a junior teacher. And your goal, in a sense, is to train and disciple and hand over the teaching job to him and then go start another class and bring along another junior teacher. This is what it looks like to be a Great Commission church. It's a sensitivity to discipling. We even think about it when we decide where we're going to live and and what we're going to work at and how, how we're going to, to act. A Great Commission church should be uncomfortable, even sometimes provocative for a nominal Christian. If you show up as a, at a guest in a church on Sunday only as part of a casual religious duty, you may not like the emphasis very much. You certainly would be welcomed, but a Great Commission 
focus churches, members, may not be about what you're about. They're about giving their whole lives to follow Jesus, and they commit to helping one another to follow Jesus. So such a commitment and such activity is part of the very culture. There's questions that are very intentional. There's conversations that are meaningful. There's prayers that are thoughtful. There's continual reminders of the gospel. That's not comfortable for a nominal Christian. I ask you to do a pulse check on yourself this morning. If you're a nominal Christian, you don't have to stay that way. But don't expect the church to alter its focus to accommodate nominalness. Our focus is given to us by the supreme authority of the universe. There is no higher authority than Jesus, and there's no plainer imperative verb than mathetuo, make disciples. Now, we can talk about the best way to get that done, but what I'm saying is from this text, there's no discussion about the importance of it, hence the four-week sermon series here. Learning to be like the Lord, it's discipling is our plan together. Community is the best place to do this. Discipleship is about journeying, in, journeying into deeper levels of gospel application in our lives. It's rare, but it's beautiful when it happens. It's good. This is best done through your covenant relationship in a relatively healthy church. Community goes best with conviction. We're engaging with one another. It goes together like peas and carrots. Community and conviction comes together like peas and carrots together. We need both of them. We need community and we need correction. And this is the authority of Jesus being meted out in our relationships in covenant community of the church. And it's, it's a beautiful thing, but it is the road less traveled by. Finally, the fourth thing, fourth point. The Great Commission is a we thing because Jesus commissions us for all times. Let's get our moorings for this fourth and final point from our text. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. We saw the connection with the church who's the normal, regular, primary baptizers. And then we look at verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all nations being our second point, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's singular name. Singular name. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God in three persons. We see the Trinity here. And it says, Teaching them to observe all, A-double-L, all that I have commanded you. We've been talking about teaching, having the posture of a lead learner, as well as a humble teacher like the centurion, understanding the benevolent use of authority, the application of our lives, giving away the ministry. And he says, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. That's what the Bible is about, is that we, they're brought to mind for the apostles, all the commands. And then he finally says, and lo, or behold, it do. Ego me, I am with you. I'm all, I am who I am. I'm with you. Hearkening back to the divinity of Jesus by referencing Exodus 3.16. I am with you all the days. Pasha Himera, all the days. Always or all the days to the end of the age. So this first point is not unimportant because it's brief. There is a withness of Jesus as Emmanuel in being with us all the days of our life as we're going about being his disciples and discipling. Matthew 1 talks about Jesus as God with us, Emmanuel. Matthew 18, we've already read it, says, where two or more gathered in this church-like thing, there he is with you all, always. He's always among us when we're gathered like this in the name of Jesus. And now Matthew 28, 20 reminds us as, as an ending that Jesus has a witness with us, that the entirety of, of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is with us to the always to the end of the, of the age, all the days to the end of the age, to the consummation of the kingdom. He is with us until the return of Christ. He's with us all the days. This withness means He's for us as we go for Him into all types and all, with all teachings and with all the time that we have. We go hard for Jesus and we're not sorry. This withness is He for us. You know, doctors and lawyers and boot camp fitness trainers and emergency counselors are able to get through to us because we recognize our moment of need. You have an open-handed posture to their instruction. Not a blind following, but also not a prickly defensive posture either. You know you're in a moment of need when you go to a doctor or a lawyer or a boot camp fitness trainer or an emergency counselor 
and you'll filter it, but you'll listen to the doctor or the counselor because of a distance between where you are and the health of where you want to be. I want us to understand our discipleship about a moment of need. Our discipling is about moments of need. There's an urgency. We have moments of need. There's an intentionality. We have moments of need. This is what it means to be a Great Commission church. It makes all the difference. The apostles primarily fulfilled the Great Commission, not only through individual evangelizing and discipling, but by making the church what it is, by instilling this mission in the church, not just a me, but a we. There were exceptional circumstances in the starting of the church where baptism wasn't directly connected with church membership, to be sure. But normally and regularly, we see in the unfolding plan of God in the ensuing generation that baptism takes place in the church. So much so, in the letter to the church at Corinth, they're having to be told, uh, don't prioritize who baptized you in the church. Follow all the elders. I follow Paulus, I follow Paul. We see this line of continuity with baptism in the church. In Acts, 3,000 people are added, new disciples to the church in Jerusalem. More disciples were added in Acts 11. Even in Acts, we see the inculcation of the church as the way to fulfill the Great Commission. Maybe not always, but mostly. We think of Paul and Barnabas that shared the gospel. They were sent to start churches in Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, and then they reported back, and they established elders in every church, and believers gathered together in churches. And we see starts of churches, like at Ephesus in Acts 19. It never has to say that they started a church when they baptized people, but we get the, the gist of it by Acts 20 when Paul's coming back to meet with the elders at the church at Ephesus. Surely they started a church, and these elders were involved in it. If we miss it, we miss it willfully. It's hard to miss that churches are at the center of God's unfolding plan, and churches are at the center of fulfilling the Great Commission, from the Acts to the letters, and then finally in Revelation itself. This isn't just giving somebody a, a license to be a Christian when you baptize them. We're to teach them all things that Jesus told us. This isn't some parochial thing where it's us for no more. No, we want to see churches go to the whole world. We want to see churches everywhere in all people groups. This matters to us because it takes all of us to get this done. Jesus wants to use us all to get this done. He commissions every one of us as disciples greatly for his great commission. And when you act for it, you'll find joy, not contempt. What I fear is that our familiarity with this passage is not because we've read this passage and understood it and put it to practice. I think our contempt is because we haven't actually embraced what Jesus is asking us to do full-throatedly. He's saying to us, same as he said to the first apostles, Worship me, go under my authority, make disciples. Establishing through churches, baptism, all teaching, and I'm with you for all time until I return. It's a pretty narrow focus, but it's pretty broad in its impact. It matters to all of us, and we get to see Jesus at work through us through our great commission. I want to end today with Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. Here we have at the final consummation of things a picture of all types, all teachings, and all time brought together, consummated in the authority of Christ. And listen to the words of this revelation that we'll soon hear preached, God willing. Revelation 7, 9 through 12. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. Friends, your effort's not in vain. This is what the vision's going to be like in the end. Every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, every ethnos, standing before the authoritative throne of the Lamb, standing before Him in all of His authority, clothed in white robes, without blood, with palm branches in their hands. It's a new Palm Sunday, and they're crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Don't miss it, unbeliever. Join the cause of Christ. Embrace His great commission by becoming a disciple of Christ. One day this is going to be the scene. And heaven and earth will be united in praise to the one true King who reigns. Salvation belongs to God. It is His authority to mete out how He wants to mete it out. 
It belongs to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels will be standing around the throne, around the elders, the elders, which imbibe some sense of authority, around the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before this greater authority, this greatest authority, this best use of authority ever. Before the throne, they worshipped him, saying, Amen. Blessings and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And we say, so be it, Lord, as we labor in this great commission, Harvest Field, for the day in which the Lord makes it all right, because He's with you for all time. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank You for bringing us into discipling relationships in this covenant membership community. We pray for those still considering entering through baptism. We pray you would use us for the unfinished task of the Great Commission. Today as we gather, we pray for the family of Mrs. Alberta Fieber, born in 1920, a member since 1981, who passed away last week after 100 years of life. We ask you to take care of her family, pull them close to you through the gospel. We pray for health needs in our congregation, particularly want to pray for Mr. Jimmy Goodwin right now. We ask you guide us, O Lord, and how to vote, how to leave results to you, and how to stay focused on the Great Commission. We pray you'd help us to do more than one thing at once, never losing sight of your imperative for us. We pray you guide us as we prepare if you should so allow it for 2021 through a finance committee and a budget recommendation coming to our November members meeting. We pray for our missionaries not to be forgotten because they're out of sight. We pray for the Borns and the Wilsons, to every ethnicity, to every social type. Help them. Please help me as I seek to disciple young adults in Ohio this week. Help us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Facing a task unfinished. Let's stand together and sing Facing a Task Unfinished.